welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 3rd, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Some scientists study bacteria. Some study mice or rats. But David Ewing Duncan, a journalist from San Francisco, decided to study himself. Duncan's new book is called The Experimental Man, What One Man's Body Reveals About His Future, Your Health, and Our Toxic World. In it, he puts himself through hundreds of tests to study his genome, his body, and his brain. What he comes out with are some pretty surprising results. In Experimental Man, Duncan tested himself for 320 chemicals he might have been exposed to over the course of his life, which got me thinking about the chemicals in mine. This week, we look at the toxins in our environment through Duncan's project and the eyes of a toxicologist. In May of 1959, British novelist and physicist C.P. Snow delivered his infamous Two Cultures lecture. What he didn't know was that the gap between science and the humanities he so vividly described would still persist 50 years later. That's why on May 9, 2009, Science in the City, the Science Communication Consortium, Science Debate 2008, and Discover Magazine bring you Two Cultures in the 21st Century, a full-day conference at the New York Academy of Sciences. We'll bring together visionaries, scientists, authors, and the media to explore the persistence of the two cultures gap and how we can overcome it. Join Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson, former Congressman John Porter, Segway inventor and entrepreneur Dean Kamen, and many others at this historic event. We've extended our early bird pricing until April 10th. For more information, visit www.nyas.org slash two cultures. It's morning, and I've just woken up. Like many of you, I fumble into the bathroom and I start the shower. I like to plan my day while I'm washing my hair, or think about how much I need a cup of coffee. But what I'm not thinking about are the chemicals called phthalates used to give my shampoo that flowery smell. And as I lather my hair, the furthest thing from my mind, ironically, are those phthalates leaching into my skin. We live in a world full of chemicals, from the natural gas I use to heat the espresso pot to the plastic container my espresso comes in, or the carton used to package the cream. And when I decide it's eggs I want for breakfast, it's a polytetrafloral ethylene pan I'm using to fry them. Or, as we better know it, Teflon. Most of us go through a day without thinking twice about the chemical toxins we're exposed to. But journalist David Ewing Duncan decided he was going to find out a little bit more about the chemicals in his world and how they tie into our genome, our brains, and our bodies. I got the experimental man idea way back in 2001. I got the assignment to write a story about this thing called genetics. And the Human Genome Project had recently been completed, or at least a rough draft of it, and we were starting to hear about genes and DNA. And I, like most people who aren't scientists or aren't geneticists, vaguely understood or had some inkling of what was going on with that. So Wired Magazine asked me to write a story, and I was getting frustrated right away in how do I describe this incredibly difficult science. 
And so I came up with the, I thought, pretty crazy idea of testing myself. And we almost didn't do it. It just seemed a gimmick. But we did, and it turned out to be an incredibly effective way to describe the science and the implications, uh, how it felt for people that, you know, normally their eyes might glaze over pretty fast if you're writing about science. In the Experimental Man Project, Duncan had himself tested for over 320 chemicals found in our everyday environment. These tests aren't easy to get. Many of the chemicals are found in such trace amounts, like parts per billion, that they're nearly impossible to detect. And even if they are detectable, it's really expensive. So, out of 320, 165 chemicals were actually detected in Duncan's body, and some at pretty surprising levels. But let's take a step back. Exactly what is a chemical toxin, and where can we find them? Matt Bogdanfi has been a toxicologist for more than 25 years. He's a NIAS member and currently works in the pharmaceutical industry. Well, a toxin is essentially any chemical or agent that can cause harm. We, in toxicology, think about this as causing harm to the human body, but uh, there is a branch of toxicology that deals with environmental receptors like birds, fish, honeybees, organisms like that. But a toxin would be any agent or chemical that would cause harm to the body. Now wait a second. It strikes me that lots of things we eat, drink, or breathe on an everyday basis can be toxic if we overdo it. Think about the classic case of alcohol poisoning, for example. And indeed, says Bogdanfi, toxicity is all about moderation. What we call the grandfather of toxicology is Paracelsus. And uh, Paracelsus coined the phrase that it's the dose that makes the poison. So essentially anything can be toxic at very high doses. Even oxygen uh, can cause toxicity. And as you say, water itself uh, can be toxic at uh, very high doses. So it's, it really is the dose that makes the poison. And that's a very important concept, especially when we interpret toxicology findings in the context of uh, human health risk. There are doses that uh, we generally believe to be safe, provided the uh, dose to a toxin uh, is low enough. But essentially, a material that we would consider normally to be non-toxic can be toxic at high enough doses. For the most part, we're safe from oxygen and water poisoning. What scientists are more interested in are the long-term or even short-term effects of exposure to chemicals we don't really know that much about. For instance, one of the most surprising test results Duncan received came from a lab in Vancouver, Canada. Well, for the chemicals, there was one that was rather shocking, which was flame retardants. And these are called PBDEs. It's a bromide family of chemicals. And there are three or four major derivations of, of these bromide chemicals that are used in virtually everything. I mean, we're sitting here in a room in New York City, and we are surrounded by flame retardants. I mean, your clothes, uh, the, the carpet, probably even your recorder. Anything that can burn, basically, is required by law to have flame retardants. And in fact, we like these because they save our lives sometimes. Yeah. But they also, they're known as thyroid disruptors, uh, suspected carcinogens, as they always say. So I came out with 12 times higher than normal levels. I mean, people who work in the factories have less of this in, in them than me. So how did this happen? I called experts all over the world. One of the major experts is a guy named Aki Bergman in Sweden. It was kind of funny. I was in an airport when he called me, and he said, are you sitting down? And I said, no. And he said, well, 
first of all, you have very high levels, extraordinarily high levels. And I said, well, how? And he went through, do you have a new mattress, you know, a new computer? Because sometimes when the computers heat up, when they're new, they put off. And then finally, I suggested, well, could it be airplanes? I mean, I fly all the time. And he said, well, it's interesting you say that because we're going to run some tests on that. And he did. And it turns out, yes, when people fly, airplanes, again, we don't want airplanes to burn when they crash. You know, we want to get out before they burn. So they're drenched in flame retardants. It turns out that they stick to dust and you breathe in the dust and then they get inside of you. So he tested people traveling on long trips and did a before and after blood test. And they, sure enough, they spiked way up and the air levels inside the plane as the flight went along got more and more concentrated with flame retardants. Now, before he resolved never to fly again, the levels of flame retardants found in Duncan's body are still in tiny trace amounts. And in fact, his high levels might be due to the way his body stores chemicals. Our different genetic makeups can determine whether or not, say, we're allergic to peanuts, or more likely to store flame retardants in our cells for a longer period of time. Our different genetic makeups also help determine our metabolic rates and how much fat we have on our body. Two key factors in how our bodies store chemicals, says Bogdanfi. What controls how long a, a chemical stays in the body most often has to do with how fat-soluble the chemical is. For example, DDT is a very fat-soluble compound. And so when one is exposed to DDT, uh, it quickly moves to the tissues in the body that contain fat. And so the chemical will reside there and leach out into the blood where it can be measured uh, over time. On the other hand, chemicals which are much more water-soluble tend to stay in the plasma and then are eliminated uh, from the body rather quickly through the urine or feces, or if it happens to be a volatile compound, uh, could be uh, eliminated from the body through exhalation. And the second component is how quickly the compound might be metabolized in the body. Uh, oftentimes, fat-soluble compounds are metabolized in the body to water-soluble compounds, and therefore they can be eliminated more rapidly once they become water-soluble. But some compounds, like DDT, are very much resistant to metabolism, and so therefore uh, the body can't make them water-soluble and eliminate them more rapidly. This would help explain the levels of DDT in Duncan's body that are remarkably high, even though DDT was banned in the United States in 1972. Duncan is 51 years old, but his childhood exposure to the chemical was enough to significantly impact his test results. DDT, or actually the metabolite it breaks down into, called DDE, is the big blue column there. That's my level. The yellow column is the 95th percentile of the national testing for this, and that's basically the highest levels that that were found, except for for the ones off the chart. So as you can see, this was a chemical, DDT, I was exposed to as a child because I grew up when they were still spraying it before DDT was banned. And even all these years later, I still have a huge amount of this in me compared to other Americans. But the interesting thing is that this has a half-life, this chemical, of about 15 or 18 years, which means it has as it leaves your body. So I would have had about three times this level when I was a child. When I was a kid, by the way, we would take our bicycles. Every year they would bring a big truck and spray DDT out at our lake because it would get rid of mosquitoes that might have malaria. And we would ride around in the back in the cloud with our bikes going through the cloud. While Duncan's body has stored DDT in fat cells for years, not all toxins are stored in the same way. 
Metals like lead and mercury possess different chemical properties, which Bogdanfi explains makes them more dangerous in our bodies. Lead is what we would call a divalent cation. It has a, a plus two charge, but so does calcium. And so lead can behave very much like calcium in the body. And that's why lead tends to deposit in bone and in teeth and eliminate, be eliminated very slowly from the body. It gets bound up in, in the bone. In the case of lead, bone is a sink uh, for lead in the body. Similar type processes uh, occur for mercury. These days, one of our most common exposures to mercury comes from fish. And while we've all heard the warnings about eating too much tuna, Duncan was curious about just how much mercury we actually consume when we eat a big fish. I did something called a fish gorge, and I did this twice. So this is where I went off the coast of California, and the book starts with me catching a halibut. I'm actually out on a fishing boat catching this fish. And I went home and I ate it for lunch. And I bought a swordfish, which I ate for dinner. And these are two rather large predator fish, and the swordfish being larger. And our major source of exposure of mercury as humans is eating big fish. Small fish are fine, but the big fish eat the small fish, each of which has mercury in it, so it, it accumulates in these big fish in fairly high quantities. So I went out and I tested before this, these two meals, it's only two meals, my level. It's four parts per billion of mercury, and that's safely below the 5.8 parts per billion threshold that the EPA suggests that you don't go over in your blood mercury level. But after these two meals... 13 parts per billion. So it more than doubled, and I was way above that, that safety threshold just from these two meals. And again, I don't want to scare people off from eating fish because this is, this is the big fish that give you the most mercury. Small fish are fine. They have very small levels of mercury or very minute levels of mercury. But the EPA, FDA, others do suggest that women of childbearing age and small children don't eat a lot of big fish. And personally, I don't even really like fish, but I'm not eating a lot of big fish myself. Duncan went a bit further with his mercury experiment and looked at his genes. What he found was some people express a gene that make them more likely to retain mercury in their system. What I did was I went out and I found that there were 13 genetic variations that have been found in studies. And this is very, very preliminary data. Uh, I was able, with my genetic data, to find a number of them, my variations. And what this means is that we each are born with a particular genetic defense mechanisms that evolution has given us. You know, if you think about it as an organism, what we have to be prepared for is the onslaught of the environment. You know, everything from sunlight to oxygen. We've developed certain defenses, and that is embedded in our genes. I came out in my little test here fine on this, but... In fact, if I had had different variations, it could have suggested that I'm more sensitive to the ravages of mercury in this case. In one of these cases, actually several of these genes control a chemical called glutathione in cells, which flushes out mercury. And mercury usually is flushed out within about 30 days of exposure, but some people retain it a lot longer, and especially in their brain, and that's what can cause some damage. And I suspect that we're going to find in the next few years that a lot of these mysterious diseases that affect some people but not others have a genetic component like this that's been triggered by the environment. Even if you've got a gene that makes mercury stay in your body, you, like Duncan, can have some control over your mercury exposure, mostly because you know where it comes from. But what about chemicals that today aren't thought to be dangerous and maybe even considered beneficial, but tomorrow could be the next big toxin? Bogdanfi says prevention of cases like DDT is on the radar of government agencies, but it's still in the preliminary phases. 
at the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences, there is a new program ongoing called ToxCast, where they are developing high-throughput screening approaches to assess the potential toxicity of many, many, many compounds at one time. Now, these will be screens, and there will be a lot of sort of false positives, false indications of toxicity, and there may be some false negatives where a compound is considered to be non-toxic but could actually be toxic. But again, these are screening tools that will allow us now to identify the materials that we really do need to focus on and invest more in-depth research into to really understand their toxicity. But what about industry? Don't they have some responsibility when it comes to developing products that could expose us to toxins? I asked Bogdanfi whether or not the fat solubility of a chemical is a consideration of manufacturers when they're developing new products and new chemicals. Well, it is, of course, a consideration when those companies are evaluating the potential health effects of, of their compounds. However, for many chemicals, particularly used in the chemical industry, fat solubility, those are physico-chemical factors that the company is looking for that, that they may actually need for the product to work the way it intended to. Um, however, having said that, uh, there is international regulation called POPs, and these are persistent organic pollutants. And these persistent organic pollutants are typically very fat-soluble and will stay in the body for a long period of time. Uh, many of these POPs materials are now uh, internationally banned. When a chemical company is developing a compound, clearly they would want to stay away from a material that might be considered a POP. And uh, there are various measurements that are made uh, on the compound to ensure that it does not uh, accumulate or persist like a POP compound would. So does Bogdanfi think that we need to walk around wearing respirators? I really think that the public has been dealt a disservice by the amount of hype really that's out there with regard to chemical exposures. I mean clearly there are some exposures, many exposures in fact, that are that are quite dangerous. Uh, take for example exposure of workers in the vinyl chloride industry. Those workers uh, developed uh, liver cancer which was very much related to their exposures. Lead exposure is known to reduce IQ of children if their exposures are high enough. So there are many exposures that we really should be concerned about. Um, I think where the main concern comes is in exposures to materials for which we, don't, we haven't yet really characterized the toxicology of those compounds. My feeling is that there are enough checks in place that the public in general should not be overly concerned. That does not mean that we should set aside all concerns. I do think that uh, toxicology is still a relatively new science, and there's so much more technology coming available to us to help us better understand the toxicology of compounds and the toxicology of large numbers of compounds that we are increasingly in a better position to better understand these materials. And Duncan, who knows a whole lot more about the chemicals in his body than maybe he ever wanted to? I personally am a bit of a fatalist on much of this. That's probably why I was able to write Experimental Man. You know, if I really obsessed about this stuff, I think I would have stopped a long time ago. And I don't want to scare people, but there, well, one, one company that tested me, I was talking to one of the executives who has a test for heart attack risk. And I said, aren't you worried about scaring people, you know, predicting when they might get a heart attack? 
And he said, well, basically, if you're paranoid about your health, you're going to have more ways to be paranoid about it with all this new technology. So, you know, I think it depends on, on the personality. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Thanks for tuning in. Did you know you can now find Science in the City on Twitter? Follow us at Sci and the City. You can also find us on iTunes. Science in the City relies on your support to keep these podcasts coming. Whether it's donation to the Academy or in direct support of our programming, your dollars really matter. Visit scienceandthecity.org slash donate to pledge now. Want to advertise with us? Get your commercial in our weekly podcast series or place ads on our website or weekly newsletters. Visit scienceandthecity.org slash sponsor for more information. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast series or our website, send us an email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. We promise to read and respond to everything you send us. And as always, for more science in New York City, log on to scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.